So uh, I was born in 1982. How about them apples? All right, anybody else born in the 80s, early 80s? Awesome. So we're friends together. Okay, uh, that, that is, that's entirely good news. What I know about our generation is that baby, our 80s babies collected stuff, okay? Uh, and I know that every generation collected things, had their various forms of collections. Uh, I get that. We've been doing that for a long time. 80s babies just collected really weird stuff, right? Uh, so, I mean, I had Ninja Turtles, right? Ninja Turtles. Okay, one guy. Awesome. <laughs> we'll play together later. That'd be awesome. Okay, you know, Care Bears, Pokemon, Garbage Pail Kids, right? Uh, like, ridiculous and sad at the same time. Like, I feel like the generations before us actually collected things that matter, and even possibly the generations after us maybe collected things that matter, like iPods and stuff like that. Uh, like, we collected trash. I'm not really sure what the 80s were all about, but for me, it was baseball cards. Any baseball card fans out there? Okay, I knew everything there was to know about baseball cards. I knew every card. I knew every series of cards. Like, I, have, I still have a ton of them somewhere, all right? They're, they're just very, in a very heavy box that my wife wishes that we would get rid of, all right? So they're, I just knew everything about them. They were my whole life. I mean, they were my passion. I, I spent tons of time and resources. I mean, I, I spent all of my allowance in trying to buy more and more baseball cards. They became my passion. Now, I realize that that's kind of a frivolous passion, but that's who de it determined who I was. My passion for something even that small determined who I was and what I did every day, right? And so, and that hasn't changed. I mean, a lot of us, we have our passions that determine really who we are and what we do. Some of us have really sad passions and some of us have passions that actually kind of matter, uh, but, but we're all passionate about something. And, and we all had passions when we were kids and we still do. Uh, and so usually what happens is that we are defined by those passions, Okay, hear me out. A lot of us, our work in our career or our profession is defined by the passion that we have. And so therefore, it's like, Charlie, I'm a pastor. Or it might be Susie, and she's a nurse, or a doctor, or you know, something else. You might, that's, that's your passion, and so that's how you are defined. It might be that you're defined by the fact that you, are a, like that you have some significant hobby, or a sports team that you follow, or something like that. People know something very specific about you. Like, you might be like, hey, this person is a huge Gamecock fan. They know everything there is to know about every player, every coaching decision, and that's what they want want to talk about. And so they have people that will come and talk to them about those specific things. And we, sometimes we're defined by our children, right? So defined by the fact that I'm a mom or a dad, okay? And that's because that's my passion. All of my relationships, everything that revolves around my life revolves around my specific passion. And it becomes who I am because that is what I do. It determines the people who are around me. It determines how I spend my time, how I spend my resources. Your passions are, are extremely important because that's, that's what defines you. We are defined by our passions. Now, so this is how people look at us. Except for God. When we get to God, things change a little bit. Everybody else sees us for what, who we are and what we do. And they, then they make a judgment call 
whether they're going to have a relationship with us based upon who we are and what we do. If they like who we are and what we do, then they will decide that they are going to have a relationship with us. If they don't like who we are and what we do, then they're not going to have a relationship with us. That's the way that the world naturally works. That's how you work. That's how I work. Except for God. God doesn't work that way at all. In fact, here's the deal. And I want you to get this statement. I think it'll be up on the board for us. I want you to wrestle with this one. God does not love you for who you are and what you do. Let me say it again. God does not love you for who you are and what you do. Now, I want that to sink in a little bit, okay? So I'm going to have you do something here. I say, I want you to say this to yourself, possibly out loud. Here we go. God does not love me for who I am. Go ahead and say that. God does not love me for who I am. Now, that should sound weird coming out of your mouth. God does not love me for who I am. Now, here's another one. God does not love me for what I do. Say it with me. God does not love me for what I do. That should cause, it does within me, a little bit of disruption in my soul. God doesn't love me for who I am and what I do. Because that's how every other relationship in my life works. People love me for who I am and what I do. That's that's my passions. They love me for my passions, what I'm passionate about, who I am and how I'm defined. But now I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to prove it to you throughout the day, God does not love you for who you are and what you do. He simply doesn't. I'm going to prove this to you by sharing with you a story of a guy named Paul in the book of Acts. You can turn there, Acts chapter 22. All right, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 22. If you have got a Bible, hopefully uh, break it out. Okay, if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible because we want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. Of course, uh, we, you can use your version app. Uh, all of my notes will be there. Uh, of course, you can read it for, uh, on, on, the, on the screen behind me as well. Now, here's the deal. Before I get into this, I'm going to be talking about a guy who is very, very religious. Very, very religious. All right, you're talking like the epitome of a religious man. So I'm going to tell his story. Now, his story is going to, I, like, kind of your, people who have been very religious in their life are probably going to identify with him a little bit more. Now, if, you are in, if you're here today and you're just trying to try this whole church thing out, you're not really sure, you definitely know that you're not a, you're not a Christian, you're just, you've maybe been invited here for some reason, and you've showed up and you're just trying to seek this out, you're not really sure about the songs that we sing, what we believe, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to ask you to say out loud next, like you're wondering what that's going to be, right? So I, I get that you're in the room, and, I, and here's the deal. Today I'm going to be talking a lot about church and church people and people who are religious. But here's the deal. I don't want you to check out because immediately you're going to say, well, that's not for me. I'm not a church person and I'm not a religious person. And let me just say, here's the deal. If you decide to take the leap with Jesus, if you say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to enter into this relationship with God, then you'll want to hear a little bit of insider language. And that's what this is going to be today. So I don't want you to check out. I want you to check into the conversation, okay? Because I'm going to be talking about a lot about religion, church, that kind of stuff. And I don't want you to check out on the conversation, okay? So here's the deal. In Acts chapter 22, Paul, who used to be named Saul, we're not really sure why he changed the name, but he did. God decided to change his name and put up instead of us, okay? So it's a, it's a Paul. He's Paul now, and he's telling his kind of life story, 
as to how he came to know Jesus for the first time. This is several years after he already came to know Jesus, and he's telling this story, and he's telling the story to a bunch of Jewish people inside of the church, so to speak, okay? So he's telling this story, and he's giving a firsthand account in Acts chapter 22. Now, if you want Luke's account of it, or somebody else's account of it when it first happened, you can go to Acts chapter 9. It's the same exact story and probably what you studied in the missional community this week. But in Acts 22, we're going to get the firsthand account from Paul himself. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 22, verse 1 through 22. I'm going to read the whole story. Follow along with me, okay? Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, remember he's, he's talking to other Jews, right? They became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, uh, but, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, or the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to keep reading, but here's the deal. Paul's basically saying, I was not a Christian. In fact, I was a religious zealot who decided that I, was, I hated Christians so much that I was on a journey to both imprison them and possibly kill them, and people who were ordained over me were telling me to do so. Okay, Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told, um, told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, he said, uh, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight and saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see, uh, to, to see the righteous one, which is Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of, of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And, he, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you a far away to the Gentiles. Okay, so what we have here is a guy with intense religious fervor. And he has this amazing encounter with Jesus. I mean, he was not seeking after Jesus. He wasn't looking for Jesus. And Jesus just showed up one day. 
Now, before that, he kind of, now in these first couple verses, he's going to give his religious resume. He's going to say, hey, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. I mean, this is a big time Jewish city. I'm a Jew of all Jews. You can't get more Jewish than I was. And not only that, I was educated by Gamaliel, the, the best Jewish educator in the entire known world. Paul sat under, Saul at the time, sat under his teaching. And then not only that, he was a strict commander of the law. And he listened to those who were appointed over him, the priests and such, and that led him to do some pretty crazy things, murder and imprison people who were not following what he thought that they should be following. And then Jesus shows up in his life and completely changes him. He has an amazing encounter, a miraculous encounter with him. He, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now, now what, what Paul was doing was he was persecuting his church. Very important thing for you to realize is that when, 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 we are pers- when, when the church is persecuted, Jesus thinks, hey, you're persecuting me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us as Christians. Pretty important point there. So at this point, Paul, his passions, everything that defined who he was and what he did were changed in an instant. Moved. God did not love Paul for who he was or what he was doing. Let me say it again. Paul was not loved by God because of who he was or what he was doing. And so just like Paul, we are like that as well. God does not love us for who we are and what we are doing. He wasn't doing what God would want him to do. He was on the wrong side of history completely. And Jesus shows up and changes all that. Now, he didn't deserve it. He wasn't the best candidate for this. You're talking about somebody who killed Christians. Not the best man for the job. But Jesus shows up in his life anyway. And what this story tells us and proves to us, it proves to us that God does not love us for for who we are and what we do. Here's the truth. God loves us because of who he is and what he does. I want you to get that. God loves us because of who he is and what he does. Now, this is a complete mind shift for all of us because all of us are used to being defined by who we are and what we do. It's a major mind shift that we have to make. And I want you to make it with me. Now, it's a very difficult mind shift. It doesn't just happen in an instant. It it takes a lot of time for us to be asking and growing in our relationship with Jesus to be able to say, I have to change my mind to think it's not just about me. God doesn't love me for who I am. At the core of who I am is evil and wrong. And God doesn't love that. God loves his son, Jesus, and God desires for Jesus to, to, to be in our life. God desires for Jesus to be, uh, him, for he to see Jesus within us. That's what he desires. And he desires us for us to do what he would call us to do. And we have to make that mental shift. Now, here's the deal. What I want us to do for the rest of the day is I want to give you five questions because I want these five questions are going to help us make this mental shift. Because I, so I've already given you the truth of what, you, what I want you to learn today, okay? I want you to learn that God certainly loves us because of who he is and what he does, not because of who we are and what we do, okay? I want you to make that shift, but I want to help you do that by giving you a couple questions or five questions that are going to help you think through that, okay? 
So here are the five questions. If you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay, sweet. Awesome. All right. So if you're taking notes, you might want to, do, might want to write these down. Number one, five questions that will make you, make, make you have a mind shift about this. Do I trust in where I come from or where I am going? Do I trust, keyword there, do I trust in where I come from or where I am going? Now, here's the deal. With Paul in the first verse, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. That's where I come from. That's my religious resume. That's what's important about me. You need to know where I come from because that's important. Likewise, some of us who grew up in church, you might have grown up in church your whole entire life. You might have been in church since the doors were open when you were an infant, right? And you were in Sunday school your whole entire life. You never missed a day. You even went on Wednesday nights. It was a big deal to you and your parents. And if you are relying on that for your eternal destiny and how, and you're relying on that and you think that God loves me because of my history, you are desperately wrong. Because Paul relied on that. Paul was, was relying on his history, his spiritual history and his spiritual foundation as to why God would love him. Now, this changes in Paul's life, and that's pretty important. We're going to get to that in just a second. Now, if you know anything about me, uh, my, me and my family, uh, we are uh, walking through a house renovation. We bought this old log home, and uh, we're, so we're doing a lot of house projects, more house projects than I can possibly imagine. And uh, part of, uh, I'm not really a big heights guy, and sometimes I've got to climb on top of a ladder to get on top of a roof, okay? So the other day, I, was, I, was, I put up this ladder so that I can get up on top of the roof, not really good with ladders, and I climb up, and I'm at that, like, point at the very top, trying to transfer, transfer all 64240, I think, um, of me onto the roof from the ladder. And I'm not very good with ladders, and I didn't do so well in setting the ladder up. And so I'm right at that point where I'm trying to transition onto the roof, and I feel that kind of quirk in the ladder, right? Where it's just like, oh no, things are not going so well, right? And so, and, and so I have to make a decision. If I press any more onto the foundation of this ladder, it's going to go over. So the only thing that I could possibly do is use my arms to look forward to where I was going and pull myself up. That's the only thing that I could do. In the same way, out your, the, some type of religious foundation that you have or where you came from is going to crumble. And the only thing that you have to look forward to is what Jesus is going to do in your future. That's why he calls it hope. What we as Christians have to do is we have to rely on what God is doing in our lives right now and what he will do. Believers that I know that are maturing in their faith are not relying upon some kind of church or religious history in their background where their parents went to church, what their parents did, or what their grandparents did, or some form of baptism that they had. They're relying on what Jesus is doing in their life now and what Jesus is going to do in their life in the future. We have to, work, we have to think through where we're going, not where we have been. Now, Paul makes this shift. You could see it. Don't turn there in Colossians chapter 3. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and we figured this out about him in this mind shift that he's going to have. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Get this, okay? Now, now remember, Acts 22 says, I was a Jew. I'm, I'm from Tarsus. I had the resume. Now in Colossians chapter 3, it says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here's the truth, and I want you to get from this. Jesus transforms us from past dependent to future hopeful. People who are growing in their relationship with God talk a whole lot more about the hope that they have in Jesus and their future than some type of religious past experience that they have. Are you focused more on the past or are you focused on where you're going? Second question. Have I graduated from growing spiritually or am I eager to keep learning? Have I graduated from growing spiritually or am I eager to keep learning? So Paul says, I studied under the best teachers. I learned everything that I needed to know and now I'm off killing Christians, right? I've got everything. I've got the education. I got the degree and I'm done. Now, some of us with some religious history think through the fact that I've been to Sunday school. I've heard all the stories. I know my Bible. I'm good. I don't have to think about this this stuff anymore. I've kind of graduated past all of these things. And Paul thought the same thing. He thought, this is who I studied under. I've I've got it all. Yet, in his own story, now, again, he's He's been taught about this Messiah who's supposed to come. He spent more time, countless hours, probably wondering about who this Messiah is going to be, highly educated on the Messiah. And then the Messiah appears on the road for him directly, calls him by name, and what is the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Who are you? Who are you? I don't know how many hours he spent on his education, but he needs to go get his money back, right? Thinking through, he didn't know. There are things that we have to continue learning as believers, and we can't shut ourselves off and think, I'm good. I've, I've already got all this Bible stuff down. Recently, I heard an I heard a, uh, uh, interview with this guy named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is this uh, theologian. He's been around for a very long time. I looked it up. He's almost 90 years old and still teaching theology in a seminary. Super smart guy. He's written hundreds of books, literally hundreds of books. Uh, and, and, and so in the Christian world, I read some of his books when I was in high school and college. Just incredible, wonderful theologian. Uh, he has been teaching at a seminary level for 67 years. Theology right? In a recent interview, somebody asked him, you're uh, 89 years old, uh, Jim is his name, Uh, Jim, you're 89 years old. Is there anything that you're still perplexed about within the Christian faith? And he he said, Hebrews 6.1, I still have no idea what that verse means. Now, 67 years of teaching theology, he can point to a specific specific scripture verse and say, I have no idea. I don't know. And for him, he's still learning about that. He's still processing that. I hope that if I get to 89, 90 years old, I hope that I can look at the scripture and say, there's still more for me to know. There's still more for me to dig into this gospel a little bit deeper. And so as Christians, we have to think through, are we growing? Have we graduated from growing spiritually? Or are we still spiritually longing? Still hunger for that? Third question in this mind shift. Do I focus on the rules of God or the freedoms of God? Do I focus on the rules of God or do I focus on the freedoms of God? You see, here's the deal. In verse 3, Paul says, I focused on the strict manner of life. 
I focused on the law. My job was to make sure that everybody was following the rules. And if you didn't follow the rules, I was going to imprison you or I was going to kill you. That is my job. I want to make sure that you're following the rules. And a lot of us think through our Christian faith in this way, that God has given us a bunch of rules to follow and we have to not do a bunch of stuff. We think that the Christian life is just not doing a bunch of things that God doesn't want us to do. And that will be good. If we don't do a bunch of stuff, then we'll be okay. When in fact, that's, Paul completely trans, Jesus completely transforms Paul in this way where he begins to think through his perspective about who God is, is not just someone who just makes a bunch of rules, but also gives a ton of freedom. And it's about perspective. Now, are there any speeders, like people who like to go way over the speed limit? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Drive that huge hunk of metal right right past those speed limit signs. Now, those speed limit signs, 45, 35, 65, all right, they are there on purpose, And most of us, when we see a speed limit limit sign, we think of it as a negative thing. Right? I can't go past 65 and I really want to go 80, right? We're thinking through that as a negative thing. Now think about this for a second. If you're on the other side of that, you're you're like, the government is allowing me to go 65 miles an hour. That's an incredible thing, right? Otherwise, I'd be walking on a camel. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be walking myself rather than going 65 miles an hour in a big hunk of metal, right? It's much better. That's a good amount of freedom that God has given to us, or that the government, in this case, has given to us. Now we can look at that as they are limiting me, or they can look at, or you can look at it and say, I can go this fast on this road that I didn't pay for, right? So like, you can do that. So it's it's about perspective. Now, if God says, hey, you shouldn't steal. I'm not saying that God doesn't have rules. There are laws that God has set up, and those are very good laws. Think about one of them, right? If you're stealing, right, God says, hey, don't steal stuff. So that's giving you a perspective change. God is giving me the freedom to not be in prison, right? So adultery, God says, hey, don't commit adultery on your wife. God is giving me the freedom to be a good husband, to love my wife well, to leave a legacy for my children. These are all good freedoms that if I committed adultery on my wife, I would have that freedom taken away from me, right? Anxiety, God says, don't be anxious. So God has given me the freedom to have peace, to have peace of mind, to be restful. God is giving me all those freedoms, right? Now, if I made a rule in this room, hey, don't use your cell phone to check your Facebook during the sermon, I'm giving you the freedom to listen, right? (laughs) And tell all your friends, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm giving you that freedom. Now, you can look at that and say, this preacher just gave us a really irritating rule. You can look at it like that, but Paul looks at it now as, yes, God has ordained laws in our life, but those laws are set up so that we can be a free people. And how, this is how it comes out later uh, in his theology. Uh, he's, uh, there it is. Okay, uh, Galatians 5.1. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What he means by the yoke of slavery is sin and law, right? And he said, For freedom Christ has set us free. You have a man that used to dictate everything by rules, strict keeper of the rules, and now he says Christ has set us free. A really intense and really good way of looking about how God has gifted us with that, but that's a mind shift that we have to make. Question number four. Have I been religiously misguided 
or have I received teaching based on the Bible? This is a big one for a lot of folks in this room. Have I been religiously misguided or, I have, or have I been, uh, received teaching based upon the Bible? Now, here's the deal. Paul was just doing what he had been taught to do. He was just fulfilling direct commands from people who had told him what to do. In fact, he says, I was given papers to go to Damascus to do more imprisoning, to do more killing. They were sanctioning all of this. He was just following orders because he had just learned from people who were just as corrupt as he was. And he had no source of objective truth. Now, some of our religious histories, thinking through this, have nothing to do with some form of objective truth. And we believe at the Church of Cane Bay that that objective truth is the Scripture, the Bible. We base all of our truth off of one uh, off of one standard, and that's the Bible. And so we want you to always, that's why I stand up on this stage every single Sunday and say, hey, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we want to give you a copy of the Bible. Remember, everybody can say that by heart because I've said that a hundred times. I want you guys to have the Bible because we believe that that is the objective truth. That's the objective standard. And we always want to teach that objective standard. And we want you guys to know that. We want you to hear from God himself. We don't want you to believe everything that everybody says and then go off and do it. We want you to find some standard. And so Paul had been misguided through religious tradition, all sorts of other things. And so the question for you is, in your past, have you been possibly misguided? Because it's possible that you have been taught that the Bible is boring, irrelevant, and not understandable. That's very true of a lot of us. That it, has, it really doesn't have anything to do for us today. What's amazing is we got through this thing called a huddle challenge last week uh, where we, uh, we spent a whole month trying to get people to just read their Bibles together in small, tiny little groups. And what's amazing is every, everybody that comes through one of those new huddles, they say, I've never really had the Bible opened up to me in that way. I've never been able to study the Scripture in that much depth. I've never been able to apply the Bible like that. I've always thought it was just this old book that I couldn't understand and I could never apply. And what's amazing about it, if we just try, if we get out there with a simple plan that we have called SOAP, if we get out there and actually do it, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible speaks to us in very real ways and answers some very real questions. And so we want to be a church that says, I don't want to misguide anybody. I want to make sure that we're teaching the Bible, okay? Now, here's the deal. It's very possible that you could do this kind of thing. You could, like, get away from any misguidance that you might have and say, hey, I'm going to base all of my life on the Scripture. And it might be possible that you bring this Bible to work with you, and you might be reading it at your desk. And it might freak some people out. There might be people who have known you for years, and know some history of you, and know that you're not a religious-y, Bible-churchy kind of person, right? And then one day you're, you're like, hey, I'm going to take my lunch break to read my Bible. People are going to get freaked out by that a little bit, and they're going to ask some questions. Paul had that same thing happen on the road. Jesus appeared to him, and all these people around are like, what is going on? Why are you blind? Why can't you see anything? Who are you talking to? They didn't understand what was happening. In the same way, it's very possible that you can have an encounter with God, that Jesus is going to show himself to you, and life transformation is going to happen, and there's going to be people around you that have the same passions that you once did and now you don't have, and they're going to wonder what's going on in your life. And so we have to think through a question of saying, are we going to be misguided, continue to be misguided, 
or are we going to seek the truth? <clears throat> Question number five, and this is the last one and probably the most important one. Am I trying to earn God's love or receive God's love? Am I trying to earn God's love or receive God's love? In verse 13, it says very specifically that Paul didn't really do anything. Ananias showed up and Paul received his sight. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. He just received it. There's a thread that weaves its way all the way through Scripture that talks about this idea that we don't do anything to earn God's love. That's why we keep telling you that. But we just simply receive. Let me prove it to you. It'll be up on the screen. Psalm 24, 5 says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. John three twenty seven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's over and over again in the scripture that we simply receive and we do not earn. Paul was trying his entire life to earn God's favor. He was trying to get God to love him. All of his passions were towards trying to get God to love him, to follow the rules. Here's the deal. Paul had this business relationship with God. It was this quid pro quo relationship. God, if I do this for you, if I obey this law, if I, diso- if I do not disobey this law, then you're going to love me. It's a business transaction. If I do more things, you're going to love me more. But that's not how God works. He wasn't even doing what God would want him to do. God is not a business partner. God is a father. And God functions like a father. I have four kids. My oldest is six. Yes, six. Now, when she was a baby, and as she is now, I love her unconditionally regardless of what she does or who she is. It does not matter what she does. It does not matter what her passions are. I don't care. I'm glad that God has made her in his image, but I love her no matter what she likes to do. And I love her regardless of how much she does for me. Right? I'm not dependent upon her doing things for me. Do you really think that God needs you to do things for him? Now, I have a fourth child. He's six months old. He doesn't do anything, right? He just sits there and garbles and eats things and poops. That's all he does. But I love him unconditionally. I love all my children, not because of what they do for me, but because I simply love him. That's who I am, and that's what I do, because I'm the father. God is the same exact way. He does not love you for who you are or what you do. We have to make this mind shift. Can we make the mind shift where everything changes? And so here's the deal. If you come from a Protestant background, Baptist, you know, Baptist, Church of God, maybe Pentecost, something like that, uh, or you, maybe Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, something like that. If you come from that kind of church background, um, 
My guess is that you've been taught that God will kind of love you more if you do what he wants you to do, or if you've been in church, these kind of things. We have to be very careful, and it's very tricky to try to figure this thing out. So we have to ask ourselves these kind of questions. If you come from a Catholic background, and there's a lot of you in this room, you may have been misguided to to think that you need to earn your salvation or earn your way out of purgatory into heaven. That is not in the Scripture. It's nowhere in the Scripture. And so you may have been misguided in truth, and you need to seek what the Scripture would have to say about what you need to know about your religious history, okay? And you're our friends, and I want to love you through that process. Maybe you've been involved in some type of other religious history that has nothing to do with Catholicism or nothing to do with Protestantism. Maybe you were involved in something else. Here's the deal. Jesus loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he desires to be a father for you, not a business partner. And so it's simply today, there's nothing for you to do today. There's no actions. I don't have a one, two, three step plan for you to walk out of here and do today. I really don't. All I have is a mental shift for you to take. And here's the deal. If you, hopefully you wrote down some of those questions, or maybe you can go back on your phone and check the notes notes out a little later. I just want you to ponder one of those five questions. You don't even have to worry about all five of them. I gave you choices and options. I just want you to ponder about one of those questions, because all of us can really dive deep into one of those questions this week and think through, am I doing the first thing or the second thing, because it will depend, that, that heavily depends on how we're going to change. And we need to pray and repent at that point. Now, Paul, this amazing person that had an amazing shift in his life, comes a lot later in his life and writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But this is what this said. This is a person who killed Christians at one point in his life. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, meaning the passions, all of those things that we have, we are not waging war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And this is where I want you to get. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here it is. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive. Most of the time, we're just trying to worry about our actions, what we do with our hands, what we do with our mouths. Paul says that at, at his like, most mature place spiritually, he's saying, I'm working on keeping my mind captive to the things of Christ. So when I say make a mental shift, it's a biblical position where we have to think through things at a deep level and think through hard questions and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Father, thank you for... um, uh, Thank you for Jesus. He is the center of this story today. The Apostle Paul is simply a vessel that was used to tell a grander story of how you, Father, sent your Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us in our place for our sin. And so, God, a lot, so much of our Christian faith is thought through what we can do with our hands or what we can speak with our mouths, where we can go with our bodies that you have given to us. But today, Father, 
just want us to focus on our minds. I want this church to be able to think through and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, Father, I ask that we would be people that would seek you with all of our mind today. And God, if there are those in this room who are seeking you, who have like no, they've just very little interest in the Christian faith, and maybe they're just trying to seek this thing out, maybe today was a day where they can really take one step further in their process, that you are drawing them in, Father. God, I pray that it would not be long before they would submit and trust you. And if they would like to do that today, that they let them know that it can be done today. Jesus, hear our hearts as we close in worship. And God, I pray that your word would not return void.